everyone. Thank you for uh, attending this. Um, it's uh, my absolute pleasure to host both Joel and Gary uh, for this book launch for State of Exception in American History, uh, which is due to be published next uh, month. Uh, it's by the uh, University of Chicago Press, and it's uh, it's a sweeping synthesis of uh, and of the different states of exception in US history and how that has interacted with the US Constitution. Just a couple of bits of housekeeping before we begin. Um, so just a brief sort of overview of the event. Uh, after my brief uh, bits of housekeeping, I'll then turn over to Gary and Joel, who will give a, a broader introduction to the book. Uh, we're hoping that'll be about sort of 15 to 20 minutes. And then uh, the floor will be open for a question and answers session. Um, you to ask a question, if you could, in the bottom uh, on the right, uh, you should be able to see a raise hand button. If you could just raise your hand and then I'll take a list of everyone and hopefully we'll get through all the questions in order. If you could also uh, keep your questions nice and succinct so as many people as possible uh, can ask them. Um, could you also just for the time being until the Q&A keep your uh, video and microphones off. That's just for the purposes of bandwidth. Uh, and if your connection fails, you can just join the event again uh, by clicking on the link. Uh, so we're going to be recording this event uh, just to let you know that that's going to be happening. Um, and uh, we may or may not uh, be publishing it online, depending. Um, and during the Q&A, uh, I, I think some of you may have uh, noticed on the Eventbrite page that we had a, uh, a means of pre-submitting questions. Uh, so I will interject at various moments with just some of those uh, pre-submitted questions and maybe even a couple of questions of my own. Um, and yeah, and other than that, it just remains to introduce Gary and Joel. Uh, Gary Gertzel is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History and a Fellow of Sydney Justice College at the University of Cambridge. He arrived in Cambridge in 2014 after a three-decade career in the United States, where he taught at, amongst other places, Vanderbilt and Princeton. An historian of race, immigration and the US state, Gertzel is the author of too many groundbreaking articles and books to list here, but special mention must go to his most recent book, Liberty and Coercion, a sweeping synthesis of the history of the US states, which was awarded the 2016 Ellis W. Hawley Prize given by the Organization of American Historians for the best book on political economy, politics, and institutions of the US. It was also a 2016 editor's choice of, New York, of the New York Times Book Review. Gertz is currently working on a new book that examines, that examines the Trumpian moment through the lens of the Republican Party's neoliberal ideology from the Reagan Revolution to the current administration. Joel Isaac is an associate professor at the University of Chicago and has previously held positions at the University of Cambridge and Queen Mary London. Historian of modern social and political thoughts, he's the author of Working Knowledge, Making the Human Sciences from Parsons to Kuhn, which was published in 2012 by Harvard University Press. It explores the epistemological foundations of the human sciences from the 1930s to the 1970s. Another prize winner, it was awarded the Gladstone Prize by the Royal Historical Society in the United Kingdom. Uh, his work has appeared in numerous venues, including the Historical Journal, Modern Intellectual History, and the Journal of the History of Ideas. He's currently writing a book about the relations, relations between economics and social thought from the late 20th, 19th century to the present, which aims to explain the ways in which modern economics 
has shaped whether by traction or repulsion the development of social theory and political thought. So without further ado, uh, it's my pleasure to turn over to uh, Gary and Joel, who will give brief introductory remarks, starting with Joel. Sure. Thank you, Stephen. Um, and I just want to start by extending my thanks uh, to you for organizing this event. Um, uh, you know, I've <laughs> spent the last six or seven months uh, quite, quite far from home, indeed trapped in a, a, a you know a, a cage of my own making um but it's it's nice and nostalgic for me um to travel back very virtually to london and to see some f uh, familiar names among the, the people joining in the session um uh, i look forward to coming to london in person someday soon 2022 or, so, or sometime like that but um so it's a real pleasure for me to 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 do this and to to, to do this event with with my co-editor Gary too. So what I thought I would do in, in my kind of leg of the introductory comments is just say a few words about the origins of the book, the origins of the project, and then talk uh, briefly about um, some of uh, the book's major themes. I'll, I'll keep this relatively brief uh, on the understanding that there'll be a chance in the Q&A to kind of unpack some of the, the points that we'd like to kind of um, tease out uh, from the book. So. Uh, I'll, I'll start with the with the origins, and I suppose there there are kind of three three uh, kind of proximate uh, sources of the book. The first one is, I suppose, you know, basically personal or biographical. Um, uh, this book emerged from conversations that that Gary and I had. Uh, I mean, even before he'd he'd arrived in Cambridge, uh, as I'm sure you know, all of you know, Gary's worked extensively on the history of the police power and uh, on the tensions between liberalism and republicanism in American history and the history of American governance. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the ways of describing that tension between liberalism and, and republicanism is, is a kind of tension between law and order. Um, and the question there is, if the rule of law requires order of, or security for its implementation, what may be done in the name of security? And of course, that's an enormous question at the heart of liberalism itself. And, you know, that's true in the writings of Foucault, who, of course, emphasizes uh, extensively in, in his lectures on, on biopolitics, the way in which security becomes kind of central to liberal doctrine. So so Gary has that whole set of questions about the police power and liberalism. Uh, for myself, in a more kind of restricted way, I became interested in a generation of legal and political theorists who came of age during the, the New Deal um, and who were trying to make sense both as theorists and also in some cases as, as members of um, uh, government agencies, executive agencies, they were trying to make sense of the vast delegation of powers that characterized particularly the early legislation of the New Deal and that of course went forward into the Second World War. Um, one of the unique features of that, of that delegation, which is which was of kind of particular concern to these writers, was the delegation of legislative or lawmaking powers to the executive, which was quite new and was the subject of kind of fierce debate. Um, and the basic question behind those debates was simply how to square this vast delegation of, of powers and the conditions of emergency with the fundamental principles of, of liberalism. So, so kind of Gary and I had these questions. Um, and we noticed that there was there was no synthetic work that dealt with questions of emergency, states of emergency um, in, in American history. And yet, as I'm sure, you know, 
all of you who are listening to this will know, American history is, is littered with examples of you know, the imposition of martial law, emergency proclamations, and the wielding of quasi or indeed fully dictatorial powers. You know, we can think about, you know, Jackson's imposition of martial law in New Orleans in the War of 1812, Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus um, during the Civil War. We can think about the occupation of uh, the South during Reconstruction, uh, Woodrow Wilson's arrogation of sweeping powers to the executive during the First World War, the virtual enabling laws that were passed by um, FDR during the early New Deal. Then, of course, the limited and unlimited national emergencies that um, Roosevelt proclaimed in the lead up to American intervention in the Second World War, um, the coming of martial law to Hawaii, the internment of um, the Isai and the Nisai on the West Coast. Um, we can think about the, the vast you know, extension of um, executive power that came with the state control of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Um, and of course, the war on terror. It's a long list, right, as you can tell just from that very brief survey. And yet there didn't seem to be a kind of systematic attempt to take the measure of, of that history. And so um, Gary and I kind of wanted to ask what we could learn from this long history of the American liberal state encounter use of emergency powers. Uh, and we wanted in particular to know if there are any common themes in, in this history. Um, so that it seemed to us, apart from our own personal interest, there was a kind of uh, sound historiographical purpose in thinking about emergencies in, in, in American history. The, the final stimulus um, really came from uh, political and legal theory. Um, there's a vast amount of scholarship in those disciplines that's grown up around the, um, the, the study of emergency powers. Um, and we, we wondered whether this body of, of theory could help us make sense of the American cases or, you know, uh, on the contrary, whether the American experience with emergency powers would lead us to rethink some of the fundamental categories of the theory itself. And that played into how we chose authors for the project. And I'll, I'll say more about that in, in just a second. Um, but on this issue of political legal theory, the figure who looms large over all of these discussions about liberalism and emergency powers is the German jurist and sometime Nazi Karl Schmitt um, and his writings on what he called the state of exception. Now, as many of you will know, I'm going to launch into a kind of Schmitt 101, but I'm sure many of you, are, you know, understand this in, in detail. But Schmitt's basic point was that there was a fundamental contradiction at the heart of liberal democracy. So for liberals, all uses of coercive power by the state had to be within the limits of the Constitution. And in turn, the Constitution itself had to be understood as the expression of the people's will, or at least as something that was accepted by each and every member of the polity. Therefore, according to this kind of, you know, liberal syllogism, so long as any use of coercive power by the state was within the realm of constitutional law, every such act of coercive power was justified. Now, famously, Schmidt thought this, that this highly legalistic view of political power was delusional. Um, and to show the depths of this delusion, Schmidt focused on a simple point, which is that the laws don't apply themselves. Right? That's kind of an elementary point. But in particular, Schmidt wrote, before there is the rule of law, there is the decision to implement the law. This goes back to Gary's point about the police power and creating conditions of order in which law can be applied. 
But equally, Schmidt continued, in moments when the very existence of a state is under threat, the rule of law will have to be superseded since courts cannot meet or legislation moves too slowly to respond to an emergency, you know, civil unrest and invasion, something like that. Um, so then the question that Schmidt raised was, well, who has the power to decide when to suspend or implement the law? That's the key question for Schmidt, the fundamental question of politics. And it was on just this point that Schmidt thought that liberals were on the horns of a dilemma. Because if they said that this power to suspend the law in an emergency had a legal sanction, that was basically a self-contradiction because they were ignoring the central issue, which is when it comes to, to the decision to suspend the law, you can't appeal to the law, you know, on pains of circularity, right? So that's one horn of the dilemma for liberals, as Schmidt saw it. On the other hand, if liberals accepted that the decision to make an exception to the rule of law was not rooted in constitutional provisions, um, then they were admitting that the defining mark of political power, the decision on the exception, was outside the whole theory of the rule of law, in which case, in a sense, what's the use of legal liberalism if it doesn't, if it, if it can't properly account for political power and the core instance of political judgment? Um, and so Schmidt believed that for liberals, there was just no escape from this dilemma. But it's not just, this isn't just a conceptual point for Schmidt. And certainly not for Schmidt's great kind of uh, reader and commentator, Giorgio Agamben, um, because this misunderstanding, this paradox, could lead, on the one hand, to a kind of weakness, right? If, if, a, if a party is so committed to the rule of law that it will never deviate from using processes of legislation and court-based justice, then it's liable in the face of invasion or social breakdown simply to collapse, right? But actually, for Schmidt and for Agamben, this was the bigger danger, that in fact, these liberal states, because they evade the fundamental question of politics, would exercise a kind of misplaced strength in which, because they refuse to understand the fundamental roots of political power, which is unrestrained decision on who the enemy is, effectively, they would fall blindly into gross abuses of justice and the war on terror and the expansion of extrajudicial killings um, since 9-11 would be cited in certainly Gambon cites this as an example of that. So it's not just that liberalism is conceptually confused, but because of that confusion, um, it in fact can be led to uh, toward a kind of uh, soft authoritarianism, I suppose. Um, okay, so, um, uh, this was then, you know, a big question for us in thinking about the book is basically, was Schmidt right? Was he right about America in particular? What would the case studies tell us about that? Um, okay, so that's the origins and then much more briefly, and then I'll hand over to Gary, I'll just then say something about the constitution of the book. So we realized pretty early on that what we wanted to do then for this book was neither to make it purely historical nor purely theoretical, but instead to bring together legal scholars with some interest in, you know, the history of American political and legal thought and practices. And on the one hand, to bring together historians who worked in this area. And of course, there are people among our contributors, I mean, Gary would be obviously like someone like John Witt as well, who straddles the, the boundaries between legal theory and, and, and American history. So we wanted to, to choose uh, authors from those two traditions and have them kind of argue out the, the, these questions about, you know, to kind of test the principles of political and legal theory and the principles of liberalism 
in specific cases. So that was that was one really exciting part of the project. I mean, you know, I'm speaking not for Gary, and he can speak for himself, but I think for both of us that we found that dialogue between theorists and historians to be incredibly generative. Um, so what did we find? This is my last uh, point. Well, we found that Schmidt's framework doesn't apply very well to American history. Um, we, we did not find pure instances of his state of exception, these, these moments when the rule of law is suspended and the kind of miraculous, basically divine character of sovereign decision or sovereign power is suddenly revealed. That's not something that we saw in the historical record, which is not to say, and this of course is important too, that we are kind of Pollyannas on this issue and that we suggest that liberal regimes are actually perfectly well able to cope with these fundamental challenges of um, existential threats to the state, be they military, economic, or, or otherwise. Um, there are two major themes that we found in the history of emergency powers, two ways in a sense of coping with the problem. And with this, I'll hand over to Gary. And the two responses are, one is a theme running through a number of the chapters is the idea of constitutional dictatorship. And then the other response is that of the development through basically democratic means of a culture of the rule of law. Um, so the first, the first one, um, this idea of time-limited dictatorial powers, many of the American writers of the 20th century in particular were deeply interested in the way in which the Roman Republic dealt with emergencies, in particular, of course, in the Roman case, uh, the danger of invasion. Um, and the various wars that the, that the Roman Republic prosecuted um, against, you know, the, the kind of you know, Germanic tribes and others from from um, uh, northern Europe. Um, so th there was a feeling among these writers that, in fact, what you could do in the face of an emergency where there was a decision to suspend the rule of law is you could constitutionalize that legal black hole. That what you could do is say there will be a set of rule and rules and fail-safes that will allow us to delegate powers, um, let's say, from the legislature to the executive, to empower the executive to act quickly and dynamically, but that there will be fail-safes that allow Congress, for example, to reclaim the powers when it needs them, um, and that will allow powers of review, which will mean that although an executive can be highly empowered, there will be a check at various important points. And so a, a number of 20th century writers felt that some version of the Roman model could be a model for American politics. The big difference, as I mentioned earlier, was that the Roman model didn't allow for the delegation, not simply of executive powers, the, the power to implement law, but also the power to make law. That's what the National Industrial Recovery Act did. It was an enabling law which declared war on the emergency of the economic depression and that allowed executive agencies through ordinances to effectively make law. That was unique in the American experience. And a number of writers, Carl Friedrich, who came from Weimar and had in fact studied and, and corresponded closely with Schmidt throughout his career, would be one example. Some of his students, Fresh Watkins, Clinton Rossiter, were also writing about that particular issue. So one response to this dilemma of suspending the rule of law in a liberal regime is to basically engage in some clever rulemaking. This is my last point. The, the second response is basically to humanize the law and to say, 
it's a point that goes back to Rousseau. Um, people think about Rousseau as a theorist of the general will and of, of the social contract. But what Rousseau says is, you know, the most important source of law in a state is not the contract. It's inscribed in the hearts of citizens, by which he means education, social institutions, customs, these things, co commitments to the polity, some form of patriotism in a sense, civic virtue, civic, I guess we would call it now. That's the most important source of law in a state. And, and one of the ideas that these um, theorists of American liberalism uh, latched onto was the notion that if you have a, a state which has a culture of developing and extending and obeying the rule of law, even when there are suspensions of basic provisions, you know, Lincoln's case, Habeas Corpus during the Civil War, if the ultimate aim in view is to restore those rights and legal privileges, and in fact to litigate post hoc um, derogations from the rule of law, that you, you can exist in this space in which there will be derogations from the rule of law, but there can be a kind of correction over time. It's a more kind of historicist view of how liberal regimes can cope with exceptions and emergencies. Um, and so those two themes, the constitutional dictatorship piece and the kind of cultural the rule of law piece come through in really interesting ways for us, both in the more political theory chapters, which are in the first part of the book, and also in some of the historical case studies, uh, in particular in part two, which are more kind of history of political thought type chapters. I could say more about that, but I've already talked for too long. I'm gonna stop there. Uh, I'm waiting for my cue. I guess I begin. Uh, Joel is the only one I can see. Joel, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for organizing this event. Uh, it's good to be back uh, at UCL in a manner of speaking. I can't see any of you, but I imagine there is an, a virtual audience uh, out there. Uh, at Cambridge, we have strong links to UCL, several of your MPhils uh, have come to work with us, and it's been my pleasure to send someone back in the form of Stephen to do his PhD, someone who did an MPhil with us. Uh, and I want to congratulate you on your hiring of Gareth Davis uh, from Oxford, which I consider to be an absolute steal in baseball lingo. So a UCL, a big shout out for me, and I very much look forward to the time when we can engage in person and not simply over the screen. It's been wonderful working with Joel on this project. Uh, we emerged at a very different historiographical traditions. We are, in a sense, different generations, uh, but our collaboration has been very dynamic, creative, and fun. Uh, I also should also say that I come to Schmidt and States of Exception as an outsider. Uh, Joel's training, it was quite central in intellectual history and, and political theory. My roots, as some of you know, are in social history, political history. And so my, my voyaging into legal history and social theory has come much later in my career. And I think it needs to be said that the concept of a state of exception is strange to the ears of most historians of the United States. It's not a phrase that we use commonly to talk about issues that uh, matter to us, even if, if we may be talking about a state of exception without actually calling it that. And I do think one has to spend some time marinating oneself in the concepts uh, to really understand and deploy it. And I, that's what I did. And I came to the conclusion uh, that it's an incredibly valuable tool, tool for thinking about 
key moments in American history of a certain type. What are these uh, key moments? These are key moments when the Constitution in all or in part went away uh, in a nation that is dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal and that we, the people, are sovereign. Uh, so it's important to recognize those moments. And then, of course, it's important to study if, how, and why the Constitution returned, if something resembling normal constitutional rule was restored, uh, how was that achieved? And it turns out that how liberal democracies handle these moments are incredibly important to their health and longevity. We can wish for a liberal democracy or any kind of democracy that will never have a state of exception. But I don't believe that such a polity will ever exist. Uh, even if the if you, one has the purest liberal democracy or some kind of other democracy imaginable, there will be a moment in that in that polity's history when they are attacked by outsiders, where swift decisions have to be made, where normal processes of law uh, can't be observed, uh, and where part of the chair's constitution will have to be uh, suspended. Uh, so I think. Uh, the book is an effort to focus systematically on those moments across American history. And once you focus on those moments, you find out how frequent those moments have been in one form or another. Uh, and I don't think we have finished the job of writing a comprehensive history of those moments. But I do regard our book as the first effort to attempt a comprehensive history of those moments in American history while drawing on the gifts and talents of four different uh, people, scholars from four different disciplines, uh, if I've got this right. Historians, of course, social scientists, um, theorists, and legal scholars, uh, all contributing to uh, this project. Uh, so that is uh, my understanding of the ambition. Uh, I should also say that I have never been entirely, uh, I've never entirely lost my outsider status to the state of exception. And sometimes there are benefits to being an outsider. Uh, and, and, I, and I have been critical of elements of it because it tends at times to be uh, too focused on dramatic moments of constitutional suspension. And that is often equated with war of some sort or another. Now, there's been plenty of war in American history, so one can fill up all states of exception simply by studying war. But the state of exception, as I understood it, seemed to me not enough focused on less dramatic uh, and slower moving processes that have become exceptions in the practice of liberal democracy. So what do we do with colonies, the Philippines and Puerto Rico? Hawaii for a long time. Uh, what do we do with Jim Crow in terms of discussion of exception? Uh, what do we do with the hiding in the executive branch of government processes from public scrutiny and democratic accountability? These can be associated with war, but they don't, they don't need to be. These tend to be less dramatic moments and instances in which perhaps some kind of exception is being deployed. But as you can see from the examples I've given, they nevertheless, uh, I, we think, are very, very important. So part of our goal in this book uh, has been to broaden the conception of exception. So it just doesn't apply to war 
and it is not just governed by temporality. Uh, the state of exception is bound closely to temporality. It's something that occurs at a very specific moment in time with the understanding that unless the society becomes a dictatorship, ends at another very discreet uh, moment in time. Uh, and so our goal became not to focus on war emergencies, uh, but to imagine other kinds of uh, moments, spaces, situations of exception in American life. Uh, and I, actually, that was not an easy task for us to undertake and probably uh, delayed the publication of the book by about two years because we had to do a lot of conceptual and creative work. Um, uh, one of the examples of that came out of that struggle is my own essay with Des King on spaces of exception in history, which I don't want to talk about because I've already had a chance to talk about it at UCL, UCL other than um, to say that uh, to focus on space brought in a different category of exception, colonies, Jim Crow, the ground occupied by people living in America who were not citizens and not accorded full uh, constitutional rights. Uh, their situation was not so much a matter of the Constitution being suspended. To the contrary, the architects of these spaces felt obligated to find constitutional justification for what they were doing. So these were thickly governed, hyper-constitutional spaces, uh, and yet they systematically deprived the people in those spaces of full guarantees of rights in the Constitution. As you might imagine, race is deeply implicated in stories about spaces of exception that um, we can talk more about. It was critical uh, to the success of these spaces of exception that they not be seen as the constitutional norm, but as an exception to that norm. If they come to be seen as the norm, if colonies come to be seen as the norm, the normal practice of American democracy, then the legitimacy of the liberal democratic regime declines and then collapses. So the relationship that we may want to talk about is the relationship of the norm uh, to the exception from a different direction. If abuses by a certain president named Donald Trump of the Constitution come to be seen as the norm, then the legitimacy of the liberal democratic regime in America collapses. This is actually a very live issue for us right now. Uh, so the concept of exception becomes critical to the functioning of American democracy, but the category of exception must function in a particular way. It must be seen as something perhaps necessary, but yet troubling, abnormal, but ultimately contained. And that's part of the story we try and tell in the book. What Trump threatens America with is, is that the exception can be contained, that the exception can be dissolved. And if the exception can't be contained, if it in fact becomes the norm, then America lives in something other than a democracy, liberal or otherwise. So the relationship of norm and exception I think is very helpful in terms of thinking about how America has handled 
not just emergencies, but problems of governance that the governors perceived. Uh, and this is a category of the phenomenon of exception that we have tried to systematically include in this book. And it takes us into new territory, uh, well beyond the territory de defined by Schmidt and his critics. Uh, and with that, I will stop and invite your questions. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you, uh, Gary and Joel, for that fascinating introduction. I'm sure it'll stimulate a good conversation. Uh, so we'll move straight on to the Q&A now. Uh, basically, if you would like to ask a question, uh, click on the raise hand button at the bottom. If you could also uh, switch on your uh, video sharing and your audio only when you're asking the question, just so we can all see and hear you. Uh, so um, I don't think anyone's raised their hand yet. So we'll start with one of the uh, pre-submitted 